All right. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. Would you please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's Word? And before we read, we are going to pray and ask for the Lord's help and blessing. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the word of truth. And we pray this moment by the Spirit that you would search out our hearts by this word. That you would draw us to Christ in faith by your word. Lord, would you even strengthen our, the current faith that we have. Would you pierce our hearts? Would you rebuke us where we need correction? And instruct us where we are, dare I say, ignorant. Cause us to examine, Lord, our, our lives in light of your word. And enable us, fully enable us to embrace the word not only externally, but embrace it in our hearts. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of Christ speaks to us like this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Friends, who wrote this gospel? Okay, keep that in mind. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the path te patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So both are preserved. Lord, you may be seated. So one of my favorite subjects um, that you can find throughout Scripture is this, this concept of newness. And I think that there are a few things that are more holy than what it really means to be considered new. Consider the following passages. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Or Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are will, will never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Or Ezekiel chapter 11. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from, uh, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, my rules, and obey them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Or, or listen to 2 Corinthians 5. This is, I've got a tattoo of this. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new, or the old has passed away. The new has come. That is good news. Or chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. So newness in the Bible is different than even the newness of this world. The, the, when, when Jesus, or the, the scriptures talk about newness, it is new. You are a new creation. Brand spanking new. But the world... Newness sound attractive, but it's not necessarily new. Think about pre-owned cars that are often marketed as it's a new one. Or, or back in the day, new Coke. What a flop. Total flop. Or this breaking news. It's, it's like brand news, but yet Scripture says, listen, there is nothing new under the sun. The Bible offers a new is a person from the inside out, a newness that is, that is transformational and that is brand new. And in other words, Jesus brings a new kind of new to the world. And our text highlights the subject of newness in two different ways. First, we are going to see Jesus' ministry to a new kind of people. And then we are going to see Jesus' ministry coming in a new way. And so it's a beautiful picture to behold, and this is one of those sermons I really want you to listen to because uh, I really want us to grasp both concepts of a new kind of people and a new kind of ministry. So first, Jesus brings a, a new kind of new and, and reaching out to a new kind of people. First, have you ever people... Heard people say, well, Christians definitely aren't perfect. Or something to that kind of way. Well, the reality is that's a knowledge that every one of us has. No one is denying that you are perfect. And if you are, you are fooled. Or just turn around and ask your friends or your spouse, uh, he's far from perfect. In fact, it's it's because of that fact that we are not perfect, that we were actually Christians, right? We need hope. Or maybe you have, you've heard this. Maybe this one's a little bit more uh, predominant. Well, churches aren't filled with perfect people. Well, that, my friends, is true as well. And many of you have experienced the, the imperfections of the church. 
But again, that's why we're here. It's our imperfection that drives us to a body of Christ. Or maybe you've heard people say this, I would never go to church because it is full of hypocrites. My thought is, come on in. The water is warm. We can always use another one. Right? Everyone in this world is, it has been and is to a certain extent hypocritical. We're willing to admit it. We, we're all, we all know our faults. We all know that we struggle with being truthful and to being honest. And that there's areas in our lives that are full of discrepancies. We're willing to... And you see, most of us have the idea that religion, men, especially the world, that religion is for good people, people who have it together. But the truth is, our faith is for bad people who know how bad they are. That's why they come to God. Next, it's one of the most definitive, dramatic, insightful, maybe comprehensive statements that Jesus has had made. It gives us even a full perspective of what his ministry really is about. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but he has come to call who? Sinners. Why did Jesus come into the world? It's to call sinners. Those who know they have a, a terminal disease, those who are desperate, those who are hurting, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are weak, those who are weary, those who are broken, those whose lives are absolutely shattered, those are sinners who know that they are sinners. We can even see it historically throughout the church. St. Augustine, the world thinks of him to be a great saint. Hence the title, St. Augustine. He said this, Lord, wicked man, myself. Or John Knox, who was renowned as probably one of the greatest preachers in the history of Scotland. Certainly a man that most people would think to be a man of great righteousness. He said this, in youth, in middle age, and now, after many battles, I find nothing in me but corruption. You get the different phases of his life in my youth, in my middle ages, and after many battles... I still find in myself great corruption. Or John Wesley. I'm falling short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable. And consequently, my whole life, seeing a, an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Or one of the great ministers of the time past, a man named Augustus Toplody among whom other things, he wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. He said of himself, oh, that such a wretch as I tempted to think highly of himself, I that am myself nothing but sin and weakness, in whose flesh naturally dwells no good thing. Or how about Apostle Peter? 
depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. How about the Apostle Paul? The the undeserving of full acceptance that Jesus came, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Friends, this is the point of the text. Jesus has come to call sinners. And aren't you glad of that? That's actually good news for you. It's good news for me. He came, if, if He came into the world only for the righteous, there wouldn't be anybody in His kingdom. Because there is no one righteous. Not one. If Jesus came for those who are perfect, who are put together, who, who have awesome holiness, are fully devoted, that are totally obedient, Jesus would not have come for one single person. But there are many who think they're righteous, aren't there, in this world? And even in our church? And He cannot help those people, though. Because they see that they have really no need. You see, that's why the Gospel has to have a negative component. So often we think that the gospel is just the hope of the world, but in reality, the gospel has to have negative because people don't come to Christ for a solution until they understand that there is a problem, a problem in their life. They don't come for healing unless they recognize that they have a disease. They don't come for life unless they realize that, they, that there is death, that they, they are in death. They are dead in their trespasses. A German theologian of the mid-1900s made a tremendous statement about what conversion really is. He said this, This then is conversion. To accept the death sentence and then the acquittal of God. That is a beautiful picture of what Salvation and a conversion is to first say, I am dead. I am a sinner. I am hopeless. I am dying to this cancer of sin. I cannot, call, so, I cannot heal myself. But then quickly realize that there is hope in Christ. Jesus came to expose us as sinners. That's why his message is so penetrating, so, so forceful, and why it tore off the self-righteousness of men and women and exposed their evil hearts. That was necessary that they may see themselves as actually sinners for the type of sinners that they are. Dreadful. Hopeless. You Listen, friends, you will never, you will never win a relative to Christ, a friend to Christ, a neighbor to Christ, or anyone else until they actually see their true need for Christ. So I want you to think for me with this, kind of this transition. Matthew chapter 9 is about the call of Matthew. And you see the first part here as a positive. He, he, he sees, Jesus sees a man who's sitting at a tax collector in his tax office, and he simply said two words, 
Follow me. Follow me. And what happened? He arose and he followed. A positive response. And then what enters into a dialogue with Pharisees. A negative response. Two poles apart reacting to the exact same thing. The exact same miracle. Jesus had just forgiven this man of his sins. And Matthew makes the point in verses 1 through 8 of that. That he has, Jesus has the ability and the power to forgive sins. Now the question comes. And we all have to ask this. How much sin can Jesus forgive? Whose sin can forgive? Whose sin does he not forgive? What are the parameters, the extent, the, 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 the dimensions of Jesus' forgiveness? Now, if you don't know anything about Matthew, you're going to this message that Matthew is man, the author of this gospel, the one who is telling this story. Extremely humble. He reduced his whole conversion down to just one verse. And he says absolutely nothing really about it. But he has something very potent in mind. Listen to the, the first part of this text that shows how Jesus received a sinner. In effect, Matthew says in, in verse 9, Matthew And this is significant. If you want to hear something that, wants, that might shock you, Matthew would have been categorically considered the most vile person in all of Capernaum. Most vile. By the evaluation of the time, Matthew was the, probably the most considered, the most wretched sinner in the town. And that's why he uses himself as an illustration. So how far does this forgiveness business go? Matthew is saying, to the extremity, to the farthest, farthest reaches. Matthew calls himself here what Paul tries to take as the title, the chief of sinners. So let me tell you a little bit about Matthew, why he's a classic illustration of the Lord's power to forgive sin. Matthew was a tax collector. Every one of us hates taxes. If there's any of you that enjoy giving the government taxes, you need the Lord. Because it doesn't make sense. But Matthew and tax collecting then were a different breed of people. They, they were the type of people who, who served Rome. So when Rome moved in and took over Palestine, they wanted to exact taxes from the people, those they conquered. So individuals living in the land of Palestine would buy, if you will, franchises from the Roman government which gave them to operate taxation system in a certain district, in a certain town. So Matthew bought a franchise of taxes of a certain district, and he was over other people. So he was a chief tax collector. And so this guy is, in the mind of the Jews in that day, he was heinous because he was being anti-nationalistic and anti-Jewish. He bought his way into a system. He bought a franchise for taxation that would 
fill his pockets. And then Rome, when he bought into it, required that he would collect a certain amount of taxes. Anything that he would get over that, keep for himself. And the Roman government, in order to keep them happy and their share, would support him in his excesses and his abuses. When he did overcharge and when he did extort people, the Romans were right behind him. So there was abuse, gross oppression. He had to just pay a certain amount, a certain percentage, and everything else was his. Tax collectors then took bribes from the rich. They extorted from the middle class and poor. They became hated. They became despised for being traitors of the worst kind. They entered into the service of another country who had conquered them. They were amassing for themselves fortunes at the expense of those that they oppressed. And the Jews despised that fact that they were anti-nationalistic but they also hated them to the extent of you are anti-faith. They went to even further in, by how they expressed it. One guy, uh, an expert, Alfred Edersheim, says this. If you were a tax collector in this day, you could not attend the synagogue. Couldn't even show up. You were barred from the place. You couldn't even have religious interactivity with people. You were listed in a list with unclean beasts out of the Old Testament. You were like a pig. Isn't it interesting how close it was to the casting out of the demons into the pigs in the gatherings of our last sermon? And now we have Matthew. He would have been in that same category. They were like swine. They were forbidden to be a witness in any court of law because they could not be believed. They were known as flagrant liars. They couldn't even allow their testimony. They were classified with robbers and murderers. And Matthew was considered the worst man in the city. As far as people were concerned, he was the most wretched human being in the town and hated him. They paid him because they were afraid not to. And so there was this man named Matthew sitting at his table doing his despicable thing and along comes Jesus and he says to him Matthew follow me. And he did. I want you to imagine what the gasps were from the crowds. As they were watching, they're going, what did he just say? Does he know who he is? Are you serious? Matthew, the chief tax collector? He's not even allowed in the temple courts. What? We can't even interact with him. He is unclean. Who? Matthew? Now I believe in that moment, Matthew was a man under conviction. He had seen and heard about Jesus' ministry. He, he, in that moment, you see in verse 9, a conversion moment. You just don't have all the details. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, 
Luke adds a little statement. He says, he left everything. Matthew doesn't say that. He's he's too humble. He's not going to talk about what he left. Because, listen, I mean, if you were a fisherman, Jesus would say, follow me. You could follow it. And you can always go, if it doesn't pan out, this Jesus thing doesn't pan out, you can always go back to fishing. You can always, you, you want to do it again. I'm entrepreneurial. But if you're a tax actor and you get up and say, goodbye, I'm done, I'm leaving, you can never go back the next day. Rome is going to have somebody in that place and it's all over. And then they also question your motives for leaving. So the price that Matthew paid was far greater than anyone else that had paid it. He walked away, and Matthew says he left everything. He didn't say, well, I'm coming, Lord, but, but hey, listen, I could really finance this whole operation if you just let me grab my bags. If I could just go back to the house, I got cash underneath the mattresses. He doesn't say that. He didn't say it. He just followed Jesus. And the reality is that Jesus didn't need those bags of cash. Matthew knew about the Lord. His home base was in the city of Capernaum. And all you had to do is go to Capernaum and see what it was like. It was this just tiny little hole in the wall. But miracle upon miracle upon miracle had happened in that city. And Matthew knew He knew who this Jesus was. That's why Jesus told me, I'm leaving my bags. I'm getting up. I'm leaving. And you know what? That is what true conversion is like. when When you have met somebody who has responded to the gospel and said, yes, Lord, they're not fighting. They're, 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 they're trying to drag on, you know, just, oh, but what about this? What about that? They just can't look fast enough. I'm done with that. The, the old is gone. The new has come. Thanks be to God. That's the way it was with Matthew. Matthew wouldn't have been able to understand why anybody else wouldn't follow Jesus when he offered forgiveness. Matthew lost a career, but he gained a destiny. He, he had lost his security, but he gained an undreamed future. He lost material things, and he gained spiritual fortune. You cannot help but think of those in Afghanistan in this moment, right? I'm, I'm about ready to lose everything, but you know what I've gained? Jesus Christ. Eternal destiny. My hope, my life is wrapped up in Jesus. So Matthew understood the Spirit of the Lord. He knew that he had come to save sinners. He knew that he was the worst, the unforgivable. He was the worst man in town. And that's how far it goes. And that's how deep it reaches. But Matthew was so overwhelmed with Jesus' grace and Jesus' mercy that what did he decide to do? He is going to throw a party. It, It was the banquet that was attended by the most rotten people in the history of banquets. 
it looked nothing like a, a wedding party. It was the worst of the worst. Probably attended by Danny DeVito, you know, kind of this little man. Crime lords. Because, honestly, who did Matthew know? He only knew the crummy, rotten, vile, wicked people in town because that's all that he could rub shoulders with. Because nobody else would come near him. They all despised him. So the only people he knew were people like himself. Prostitutes, murderers, thieves, irreligious, godless, and other tax collectors. And so Matthew's Gospel doesn't tell us all the details about this. But like so many other new believers, the first thought that he had was to win his friends to Christ. That's the first thing. You've got to meet this man. You've got to meet this Jesus. So you read in, in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, you see he calls this banquet in his own home. He got all the things set up. He invites all the wretched, rotten, vile people in Capernaum. And they're all in one building. And who was the honored guest? Jesus. And some people might say during that day, well, he shouldn't go to those people. And that's exactly what the Pharisees thought. But that's not the way that Jesus operates. Thank God. There is a right way to fellowship with sinners. And I want you to understand that. And you know that what Jesus became known as? Matthew chapter 11. We'll get to it later. He got himself a name tag, if you will. He became known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hi, I'm Jesus. Here's my business card. Friend of tax collectors and sinners. Can't think of a better title. A friend of tax collectors, collectors and sinners. And that's how they got to know him. And then along comes verse 11, right? Who do you see in the background? And, and when the Pharisees saw this, can you, can you just see it? They're like standing outside and watching and lurking kind of around outside the building, seeing every little thing. So you got the naysayers, the critics, the, the religious folk, the Pharisees, and they're all kind of lingering around outside. They wait till the banquet is over, and as the disciples come out, they don't confront Jesus. They kind of backdoor it. And they corner his disciples and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You always go for the weakest link, don't you? And that's what they did. They went for the disciples. And this question was not one out of curiosity. It's not, huh, why is he doing this? Could you please share this? I'm curious about Jesus' ministry model. That's that's interesting. We never thought about that. That's not what it is. But that what they were saying is like a stinging rebuke. It's, it's their venting of bitterness. It's a shame on you. I mean, fraternizing fraternizing with the master, fraternizing with this riffraff? Are you serious? 
It was vindictive. This, it was hateful. It was them saying, listen, true religious people, pious people like us, we shun, we shun sinners. And there's people like that, I think, in the church today who would hate to think of it, but that, but that is how we act. Our world begins, our world begins and ends with people who are in the family. And all we, all we can do is stand and criticize those who are outside of our family. Not reach out. Not help. You need to think about that because, you know, friends, the world doesn't need your criticism. It doesn't need your criticism they need your help. They need your help. They don't need to be kept at arm's length. They need your mercy. They need your love. And so they say to him, what kind of leader do you have who hangs around with scum? And Jesus overhears the conversation. And Jesus is saying, listen, I did not come to invite people who are so self-satisfied that they're convinced of their own goodness. They're, they're convinced that they don't need anyone's help. Rather, I've come to invite people who are desperate, who are conscious of their sin, and they need a Savior. That is who I've come to call. So the scribes and Pharisees, my friends, would have been lousy doctors. Terrible. They, they were more concerned with, with the preservation of their own holiness than with helping someone else. They'd be like a doctor who would say, oh, I'd love to come over and cure you, but uh, I might get your sickness. Or a doctor that would say, well, I'd certainly like to give you a diagnosis, but I don't have the time to bother with the cure. I could diagnose what's wrong with you, but I'm not going to offer you the hope. But Jesus came right down and he got into the room and he ate with those people. He got as close as you can. And rather than being, being afraid of being contaminated by them, what did he do instead? He made them pure and white as snow. He was the divine physician. He cured what ailed them. And verse 13, here he pins them to the wall and he says, listen, go learn. Go learn what this means. And this is a way a rabbi would just say, you need to go back to your books and learn what scriptures really have to say. Go back to the learn the books and come again once you have gotten the information of what it means to say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You need to go back and learn. Because listen, friends, Jesus is saying what we heard in the Beatitudes earlier. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus shows these self-deluded religionists that they were far off than the tax collectors and sinners. And I think some people just think that they can go through a certain kind of routine in their life. They can go to church and do certain things, and God is just pleased. He is never pleased, friends. He is never pleased with routine that is separated 
from personal holiness. Without a change of heart, without a deep sense of your sin, sacrifices are dead rituals, loathsome and hated by God. So Matthew, I'm going to skip over that section. You see, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is, is for hungry, thirsty people. And those people shall be filled. The kingdom is for the hurting and the mourning and the meek and the sinful. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the theme, friends, of the gospel. This is the theme. That Jesus came for sinners. And that is ringing and constant and reoccurring throughout the gospels and throughout the epistles, throughout scripture. And until you know you're a sinner, Jesus, is, Jesus has nothing to offer you. Here's the beauty, though. Jesus brings a new kind of ministry. And we see that in verses through 17. Jesus brings a, a new kind of new. And verse 14 introduces a question from John the Baptist's disciples, men who were kind of involved in the similar kind of ministry as Jesus. But their motivation was unclear. And their question was quite straightforward. Why do we... And the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. Apparently, the disciples of John felt like the followers of Jesus just weren't on the same page. And when it comes to spiritual disciplines and what we do, it seems like the disciples did not choose to fast twice a week like the most committed Jews. You're not doing what we're doing. And Jesus answers the question, with a challenging statement to fully understand. He, he uses a wedding analogy and an old versus new kind of analogy of cloth and wineskins. His first point is to point out that people celebrate while the bridegroom is with them. They certainly don't mourn at a wedding. That would be a terrible wedding to go to. It just wouldn't make sense. Jesus says, can wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The answer is no. The party has begun. And even in the Jewish culture, a wedding would last for seven days. What a celebration. The bride and the bridegroom are together. Jesus says, listen, I'm with you. There is no need for you to be fasting, to be putting on sackcloth. We should be celebrating. And the second answer relates to old versus new in the context of garments and wine. They both have the same point. The first example that Jesus gives is what happens when a new piece of cloth is used as a patch for a garment. Using a, a new piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment creates a problem. It tears away from the garment. And the worst tear is made. Wine is the next example. Jesus says that you don't take brand new wine and pour it into old wineskins. In Jesus' day, it was wine was stored in the skins of, of, of animals. And wine needs time for it to ferment and to stretch the, the skin of these animals as it was fermented. But if an old wineskin was wine, new wine was poured, poured into an, an old wineskin, it would burst, destroy 
And Jesus says that new wine requires new wineskins. So Jesus brings a, a new kind of way of doing things. And Matthew knew it. The despicable rose from his table and went forth. And the rest is glorious history. Matthew became a saint because of Jesus' methods. And it makes me wonder, friends, do we need to consider how we reach our friends and our families? Is it time for us to give up just the old way of doing it and just, man, I, I just hope if we throw this against the wall or that against the wall, or it'll work. Jesus is inviting us, saying, listen, I, I want you to consider how you step out into the world to reach people with this glorious gospel. Because here's the reality. Jesus receives sinners. And his way of doing things blew the doors off of the religious institutions. It scared him, actually. It scared the church of the day. What is he doing? But Jesus invites us to believe that he actually receives the worst of the worst. And the self-deluded righteous amongst us. And that is the message of this passage. That he saves sinners. Of whom I am. And you are. And if you know this, you are in range of the great physician who desires to save others. Let's pray.